0: The reading for today is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: All right. Thank you, Laura. Morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day. A quick question. Um, any fathers here get served breakfast in bed this morning any? <laughs> big laugh okay <laughs> we had one in the in the nine o'clock service which is one more than i thought we'd have all day long so and i did ask him was it uber eats or what happened i don't know so she didn't care for that comment anyway so um, my name is frank if you're new here we're glad you're here i'm the lead pastor here we're in the book of philippians working our way through that. Um, Let me pray before we uh, get into this, but you need to understand that um, this passage we're looking at today is considered one of the premier passages in all of the Bible. Uh, So much rides on this, and so uh, we have some heavy stuff to work through this morning. So let me pray. Uh, Lord God, we are grateful uh, for your word and its truth. Uh, We are also grateful, although it's not comfortable at times. We're grateful for the fact that... uh, your word shreds us and then also puts us back together. Uh, and that's a good thing. It, it deconstructs our false gods and our idols and the things that uh, are not honoring and glorifying either to you or to ourselves, uh, but then turns us in the gospel towards the things that will honor and glorify you and things that will help to, um, to exalt us, which is good. And, and we see that clearly in today's passage. So help us to understand this passage. Um, God, it's my prayer every week, uh, but again this week, that uh, I would merely be the messenger that your word would be applied by your Holy Spirit to your person, Uh, and that I would be uh, put out of the way insofar as your word needs to be applied to our minds and our hearts. So help us to do that today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this series that we're going through in philippians i think we're doing nine weeks in philippians um i'll be honest with you we're going through it a little bit faster than i would have liked because it's so deep there's so much here Um, and so you just i hope you understand that there's just going to be every week lots and lots of content and so if you're a caffeine drinker you're going to need some caffeine if you're not a caffeine drinker maybe you need to become one because it, we're going we're to move through this fairly rapidly, but we're still not going to sacrifice uh, content if, if we can help it. And we need to remember, and I'll probably remind you of this every week, that what we're looking at is not narrative. Uh, it's, it's a letter, and so it's didactic. In other words, there's going to be instruction and then application, instruction and then application, instruction and then application, just over and over and over and over uh, again as we go. So be ready to, to see the difference in that and also understand how to apply all of these things to our lives. Um, These 11 verses here, which I said, one of the premier passages uh, in the Bible, uh, I I divided it into four sections. It's not that Paul wrote it with four sections in mind. It's just that I kind of look at it uh, this way, and it's a little bit kind of reverse engineered, but this is the way we're going to look at it today. Uh, Verse one is the result of unity. Paul is focused on unity, especially in this passage. Uh, When we talk about the book of Philippians, people say, well, it's a love letter. Paul's uh, Paul's the founding pastor, and he loves this church, and it's a love letter to the Philippians, and that's true. It's also a book that's filled with uh, an expression of Paul's joy, which is also true. The word translated joy or rejoice is used 16 to 18 times in the book of Philippians, so it's also known as the book of joy. But I would also argue that it's known as a book that where Paul centers on unity. And, and um, the, the church of Philippi was a pretty unified church, but like any church, it has its challenges, and so he's dealing with some of those challenges. But at the same time, he's also exalting the fact that they are a pretty good example of a church that is unified. So this first verse is really the results of unity that, that much of the church in Philippi is living in. Uh, the second section would be, uh, verse 2, which is the path to unity. So you can kind of see how it's a little reversed engineered. Um, so it's the path to unity. Verses 3 and 4 is section 3, which is the essential, uh, essential component of unity, which would be humility. Spend a lot of time talking about that. And then he gives us his ultimate example of humility, and that's Jesus Christ himself. And that's that Christ hymn or the messianic poem that you find It starts with verse 5, but then really the hymn is in verses 6 through 11. So let's dive right in. Verse 1, the results or the fruit of of unity. Paul writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit or fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So there's five things there that if you're unified will result in uh, your life. Unity engenders things that we all need and want. We like those things, encouragement, love, participation, affection, and sympathy. And here you go, the way it's translated, it sounds as if Paul is doubting that that these things actually exist in the church in Philippi, if there is any of these things. Um, It's kind of a rhetorical device in ancient um, uh, Greek where really he's saying, if there are any of these things and i know there are he's saying i acknowledge that there is he's acknowledging that there is it's just a way of being able to write it and what he's doing is he's also setting us up for the important gospel lesson the good news of jesus calls and empowers us to be a diverse yet unified body and that's going to help us in our mission as a church that's going to help us Each of these qualities is going to help us. When we're unified, these will be an expression of our unity, and that will help us. So let's look at each one. I'm a word nerd, so you had to know this was coming. We're going to look at each one. So encouragement. Literally, it's standing with a brother or sister in Christ in support as an advocate. Standing with somebody in support and as an advocate. Now just think, isn't that something that all of us want in our lives? Isn't it difficult when we're engaged in life's endeavors, especially challenging ones, and we get the feeling that there's nobody standing with us, there's nobody advocating for us, that we're in this thing alone? That's one of the great things about unity is that you know you're going to have brothers and sisters who are going to be standing with you and advocating for you. And not only that, but when we become encouragers, it also means that we will be available. That will be something that sort of um, we're sort of known for, that we're available. And I know that's hard and really inconvenient to be a person that's known for their availability. It means you're going to have to uh, put up with lots of interruptions and be, able, and be willing to set things aside that you don't want to set aside. But it also means that you're going to have this willingness to step up when called upon. A desire, in fact, this availability is often expressed in a desire to develop these gospel-centered relationships that we're always talking about at Redemption Church Arcadia. And, and let me tell you something. We're so ser- I want to remind you of this. We're so serious about how important gospel-centered relationships are that we went out more than a year ago and asked Allison de Serafino to come on staff specifically so that we had a staff person who was helping us to facilitate gospel-centered relationships. That's how serious we are about that. And that's how important we think um, it is to the life of, of the, the church, the body of the church. And that's part of being an encourager. And then there's this love. And again, there's different words that we can use uh, for love in, in, in the Greek, but this is that that uh, word agape that frankly wasn't used all that much uh, in first century uh, writing outside of the New Testament, but it's used a lot in the New Testament. And I want to make sure we understand what this word agape means. I know most of you, if you've heard it, is I guess it's unconditional love, but let's take it a little bit deeper and really understand what that means. It's selfless, compassionate, unconditional love. Here's what that means. All of us love people and things that are worthy of our love, right? So Jackie is just, there are many things, that's my wife, by the way, Jackie, there are many things about Jackie that are worthy of my love. She's lovable. Most of the time, she's lovable, okay? And she's worthy of all of that, all right? Um, you, You may really have an affection for pizza. I love pizza. Well, You're not going to love pizza unconditionally. You're not going to eat it if it isn't any good. You love it because it's worthy of love. Agape is unconditional love. In other words, it's not a love that's called out by the worthiness of the person to be loved, but rather it's the character of the one doing the loving. And that comes from Christ. That comes from Jesus. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated this unconditional love. That, that's While we were yet sinners, we weren't worthy of his love. He loved us anyway. And that's what made us worthy because he loved us. And so when we become Christians, that, is, that character should be imputed to us to be able to love others unconditionally. And I know that's hard. That's a, ha- uh, that's a very high calling, but God did it for us and sacrificed everything to be able to do it for us. That's the gospel. It's, again, it's why Jesus in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, love your enemies, he uses the word agape. It's almost as if I would say he's admitting to us, look, I know there's nothing that you think is worthy in your enemies to love. Love them anyway, because that's the way I've loved you. You're loving out of the character that I have given you. And then this fellowship or this participation, it's this... Greek word koinonia. Now, some of you have been around church for a long, long time. You remember, I remember as a new Christian in the 80s and 90s, everybody was really jacked up about this word koinonia. There were koinonia ministries springing up everywhere. Everywhere, Everybody wanted to have a koinonia this, a koinonia that. It became like regular vernacular in English to talk about koinonia. Not so much anymore lately, and that's not a bad thing. But the reason is because people were saying, look, the faith is about partnership. It's about community. It, it, it's here you go. The Christian faith is not just become a Christian and do good, but it's also become a Christian and participate. It is impossible to really live the Christian faith alone, in solitude, trying to go solo. I said last week, it's a team sport, and you got to get on the team. That word affection, I think that's an interesting Greek word. It's the word splankna, which literally means your innards or your guts. Your guts. And, and what Paul is saying is that you have these this affection for others that you can feel with great intensity in, in your the in the deepest part of your gut. Okay? And then sympathy. Sympathy in, in the English it's a compound word. It's it's literally together passions. Um in, in the Greek it means a togetherness in both grief or sorrow and in celebration and joy. We often think of the word sympathy as, as only meaning when something bad happens to somebody. But, but New Testament sympathy also calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice as well as weep with those who weep. It's, 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 a, it's a togetherness in both of those things that is driven by unity that brings about this community. Um, and, and it's interesting, I've found lately, just lately, how often those two things actually happen, happen together in the same situation, the, the rejoicing and the mourning happening in the same situation. Some of you know um, Lacey Floyd. Uh, she's a young woman who's been around this church for um, more than five years. Uh, we baptized her about five years ago. She's very successful in the marketplace. She felt God get calling her to give up all of that and go into training And not become a two-week missionary, but become a lifelong missionary to India and the Middle East. And so last week, a bunch of us gathered uh, to pray with her as she's getting ready to leave now. She's probably leaving sometime this next week uh, for India. And that's where she's going to be, not for a couple of weeks. She's going to be living there, and she's going to be a missionary there. And I got to tell you, during that prayer time, there was great rejoicing and celebrating at what God was doing in her life. And, and it was magnificent. But I also have to tell you, she's been an important and integral part of this local body for a long, long time. She's very close to many people here. And so there was lots of mourning as well. There was lots of grief at that loss. So sometimes those things actually uh, come together because of unity, because of this unity. So encouragement, love, Participation and fellowship, uh, affection, and sympathy are all a fruit of unity. And then you look at verse 2, which is that path to get us there. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do you sense a theme in that verse? Same, same one. Same, same one. Same, same one. Unity of mind, common wisdom. And, and I want you to hear this. this Same way of thinking for Paul is not Paul's desire for some drab intellectual conformity, but rather it's an overarching desire of Christians to set aside their own individual interests and agendas for the collective interests and purposes of the body of Christ using their diverse gifts, passions, and perspectives to glorify God. And I know that's a really, really long sentence. But I needed to get all of that in that sentence. That's that's what Paul is trying to get here. In other words, these are souls knit together in the gospel. Literally, the two becoming one inextricably knit together in the gospel. And there is a very large emphasis on the mind here, which is important. Because as I mentioned last week, we live in a culture where Mostly, we're allowing our emotional reasoning to make all of our decisions. And we even have moral social and moral psychologists telling us that's probably not a good idea. I will tell you that most of my biggest mistakes in life have been made when my emotional reasoning has outdone my mind reasoning, my logical reasoning. And so Paul emphasizes the mind here. This is a big deal to him. We're going to devote an entire Sunday to this in July when we get to Philippians chapter 4 verse, uh, verses 8 and 9 where Paul gives us eight things that our minds are supposed to dwell upon and ruminate upon. And of course in Romans chapter 12 verse 2 he tells us that transformation which is something that we all desire is done through something called the renewing of your mind through the gospel. So it's not that Emotions and passions and affections are bad, and we need to purge them. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that when they dominate our life, we're going to run into some trouble. That's not where wisdom and and common sense and good rational thinking, gospel rational thinking comes. So the path to unity is this one gospel love and one-mindedness. And then we get to verses 3 and 4, which is the essential component for unity, which is humility. Now, my Bible reads it this way. Um, uh, Laura's read it, uh, I think, I I like the translation better, and I'll explain that in a second. He writes, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. You heard uh, Laura read that, and it was do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I think that's a much better translation. It gets it really at the root of what's going on, although rivalry is not bad. So do nothing from, uh, do nothing out of uh, selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, Consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So humility. In order to have that one-mindedness, we're going to have to humble ourselves. I've never been in a situation of great unity, community, partnership, and fellowship when arrogance was reigning. It just doesn't happen. When selfish ambition, when conceit, when vanity are reigning, it just doesn't happen. But the interesting thing is that humility was considered a vice in their culture. So what Paul was writing was actually countercultural at the time. If you were humble, if you if you were somebody who uh, lived in humility, you were actually shamed in their culture. Kind of similar, kind of similar to our culture today perhaps different in one sense, though. Like for them, in their, in their situation 2,100 years ago, they were actively derisive about humility. For us today, it's not necessarily that humil- humility is actively panned, but rather that pride, attention, fame, and dominance are vigorously pursued with no thought to the fact that there might be an alternative to that. It's just assumed that those are the virtues, that those are the things that we should pursue. But I want to just ask this question. Have we ever considered how all of this pride, dominance, attention, and fame that we press into as a culture has not led to unity, grace, or love? We are so divided now, and that's one of the reasons why we are. So the word humility, here's one way to describe this word humility that Paul is using It is not a mind that thinks less of itself. It's not negative self-talk. It's not a mind that thinks less of itself. It's a mind that thinks of itself less. It's a mind that's not turned in on itself. It's not a mind that's obsessed with self, nasal gaving. Everything is about me. That's not, that humility doesn't get along with that. And it's not that we lack confidence or ambition. This is so important. It's good to have confidence. It's good to have ambition. It's not that we lack those things, but rather we know that the power and ability that we do have, that give us some confidence, that give us some ambition, it's not ours. It's a gospel power. It's a filling of the Holy Spirit. It's a pursuing after God's will and wisdom. And and he has graced us and favored us in order to be a conduit of of that power. And that makes us stewards and not owners, and that should humble us that should humble us that we don't own that. We've been given that, graced it. it. It has been graced to us by God. But there also needs to be an awareness of its, of, of its genuineness. I, I, I had maybe six of these illustrations. There's so many of these illustrations. And I had two, and then I said, I just got to cut it down to one. So I'll use my favorite is the Ben Franklin one, okay? So historically, uh, biographers uh, have talked about how Franklin was a man who really just worked very hard at being a man of virtue and character. He really wanted to be known as a man of virtue and character, so much so that he would record every night how he was doing in these eight or nine characteristics that he felt would be uh, virtuous and characteristics of, and, and qualities of character. So things like honesty, integrity, um, in, uh, industriousness, all these different things. One of them is humility. And a couple of the biographers actually wrote about how he would check off that he had been humble or he had acted in humility for eight or nine straight days and he would actually start to feel pretty proud of his humility, okay? And it's possible that we can do that. I mean, that's a problem. Have you ever run into somebody who says, you know, I'm really a humble person. I mean, my my greatest strength is my humility. Be careful there, okay? In the 80s, you got to make some connections here. In the 80s, Margaret Thatcher gave a speech once on leadership, okay? And you have to understand metaphor and analogy here to get what the point she's making about leadership, but here's what she said. A lady is not a real lady if she has to tell everyone she's a lady. A leader's not a real leader if they're walking around going, I'm the leader, I'm a leader, I'm a leader, right? Same thing with humility, okay? That's false humility. And what Paul is saying here in verse 3 is that selfish ambition and vain conceit are hindrances to humility and enemies of fellowship and community. And I want you to notice again here, selfish ambition. Ambition is not the problem. It's selfish ambition. This is a call to set aside selfishness, or even in our culture today, our selfiness and self-obsession. That word translated vain conceit is also, could be called self-obsession. So this is really critical, again, to understand. Ambition is not a bad thing. Paul was an ambitious guy. But selfish ambition, that's when a good thing, ambition, becomes something wicked because ambition has been selfishized. By the way, speaking of selfiness, anybody, last couple of weeks there's been some essays, different essays by these doctors who uh, are talking about how they're seeing more and more cases of what they're calling selfie wrist. It's like the carpal s- uh, tunnel syndrome of narcissists. Selfie wrist. And I know some of you are thinking, well, well wait a minute. I, I see people post maybe four selfies a day, four times like that, and that's going to cause this problem? No, no, no. So I'm reading this. I'm just finishing up this book. I highly recommend it. It's called iGen. It's written by uh, Jean Twenge, who's a uh, psychologist at San Diego State University, and she's an expert on the different generations. In 2005, she wrote Generation Me about the millennials. Now she's reading about the, uh, writing about the iGen, or Generation Z, which is, which is people, are people who are born between 95 and 2012. And she says that, that the, um, the iGen are the ones that are having the most problem with this because they're taking the most selfies, and what she explains is, when you see a selfie by an iGen person posted on uh, social media, that wasn't just one picture. They're literally, research is showing, they're literally taking hundreds of pictures to get the exact right one to be able to po- literally hundreds. So if they post four, somebody might have done this a thousand times. Have you ever done something a thousand times? I don't care what it is, you're going to get a burn and pretty soon you're going to pull a hamstring, I'm telling you. It's just going to happen. So they, doctors are actually treating this. And by the way, it's not, it's not just eye geners who are doing it. They've, they're seeing millennials. And God help us if they're seeing some, some of the greatest generation old guys doing this. But th- there are other generations that this has ha- We're We're so narcissistic. Isn't it great to be living in our culture right now? It's just amazing. And then verse 4 needs some discussion. Paul assumes that we are going to be self-interested. He assumes that. Just like Jesus assumes that we're going to love ourselves. You don't have to teach anybody to be self-interested and love themselves. You don't have to teach that. You have to teach, look out for everybody else. That's what you have to teach. That's that shredding and then putting back together that the gospel can do for us. He says no one has to be taught to be self-interested. It's natural, and that's not bad to be self-interested. He's not even saying it's bad. But what he does want us to do is work our self-interest in a way that's more collective, familial, and looks to something bigger. And and, and he says, look out for your own interests, but when your self-interests are mingled with anybody else's interests, or worse, when your self interests will harm somebody else's interests, as a follower of Christ, it is incumbent upon us, by the power of the gospel, to first seek cooperation, accommodation, and in some cases, just plain old deference. Not this idea that, nope, I'm going to look out for me first. That's not what Paul is calling us to. Be mindful of other's strengths. Be mindful of our weaknesses. But also be mindful of other people's weaknesses and blind spots so that we can help protect them. And more contemporarily, we might say it this way. Don't be a me monster. Anybody have a me monster in their family? I know, no hands are going up because you're worried it might be the person next to you. I get to you. I get that. Okay, maybe you're your family's me monster, and you need to work on that, but don't be a me monster. And I've said this many times. Imagine a world where everyone lived a Philippians chapter 2 life. I mean, just imagine that. I, I think that would be the end of road rage and social media trolls. Just that alone would improve our lives, okay? So be aware of and look out for others because that's what Jesus did for us. And then we get to the ultimate example of humility, verses 5 through 11. Um, I'm not going to read it just yet. I want to give you some introductory comments. Um, These verses, as we mentioned, and Josh mentioned this two weeks ago, were thought of as a common hymn that was regularly sung in Christian communities at this time that Paul was writing. Uh, It's a poem, but it was also they thought it was sung. So in a way, it's like a psalm. It's like a psalm of of David, only it was something that somebody in the church came up with and was pretty common. But also, all the rhetorical, textual uh, analysis of this song, of this messianic poem, most of the scholars also say, but there's something about that little bit where Paul adds, even death on a cross, that they think was not part of the original song. So he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. They think Paul added that to emphasize the fact that it was not just death that Jesus did for us, but it was crucifixion. Crucifixion is absolutely the worst way anybody could ever possibly be executed. Even today, it would be uh, the worst way. And we won't go into the specific details of everything that one endures on the cross. It would take quite some time to go through it all, I will tell you. Um, contrary to what you may have heard in the Passion of the Christ, that was a fairly accurate uh, depiction of what Jesus went through on the cross. It's, it's really brutal, and it's not something that uh, you can read or take lightly. But there are three characteristics that I will mention in passing. Number one, crucifixion is painful. It, it is extreme physical torture over a long period of time, great agony. Number two, crucifixion is de- disintegration. It is planned and designed for a complete breakdown of the body, the mind, and your passion. And then crucifixion is the ultimate in humiliation. Through emotional destruction, shame, dishonor, and embarrassing embarrassment, it's humiliating to be crucified. And in fact, one of the Latin words for cross is the word crux, from which we get the word excruciating. So when you tell somebody you are in excruciating pain, understand that you're comparing the pain that you have to the pain of being crucified. Okay, Maybe we use that word just a little bit too often in our culture in that regard. And verse 5 would be the icon verse. Remember we talked about having an icon verse uh, each week. Uh, Verse 5 is, Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying. As a Christian now, We need to look at the world not any longer through our lens, but through the lens of Christ. And that is going to radically change the way we see reality and see the world. The problem is is that we prefer our lens. Because we're going to have to change who we are and how we behave and how we think about things if we're going to look at the world through the lens of Christ. We prefer our lens. And so to be able to do that, it's, it's, it's like this comprehensive combination of being filled with the holy spirit the discipline of pursuing studying and and reading god's word and then having a character of patience in other words slow down we need to slow down and slowing down and doing these other things takes humility and it takes dying to self and that's that j curve we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second we've mentioned it in the past so look at the start of this hymn verses six and seven Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, he was in essence God, he did not uh, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We need to understand that the essence of Jesus is divine. He's God. And that's his essential nature is that he's God. But he also became a man. He's both and. And, and most scholars say that in this little hymn here, this is kind of a reference to Adam and Eve because Jesus did the exact opposite that Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve disobeyed God so that they could pursue the glory of God themselves. Jesus said, I'm willing to walk away from this glory of God and, and uh, humble myself and become obedient to death and empty myself and become just like a person. So he did the exact opposite that Adam and Eve did. It's also, some people think, a temporal reference to Caesar Nero. Nero was the Caesar at the time, and Nero was famous for telling everybody that you have to call me God, you have to treat me like I'm God, I'm, I'm a divine creature. And so, again, it's, it's, it's Paul's way uh, and the church's way of saying, nah, it's not really, he's really not God, it's Jesus. And that got Christians into a lot of trouble with the Romans. Uh, furthermore, we understand that any first-century person of status would never be caught hanging out with, chumming with, or participating in the life of a servant, a peasant, or the lowly. But this is what Jesus does. He gives up everything to become just like us, the lowly. And verse 7 is all about status. It's likely a, a, a reference to Isaiah 53, verse 12, where the Old Testament prophet wrote that the Messiah would pour out his life for the salvation of others. And that idea of emptying himself means he entered our human mire. He entered it and became it. Jesus gave up his status. He became a person of no reputation and was born, of a pers- born a person of no reputation, as we know the Christmas story as well. So all of these things that we pursue in our culture today that are so important to us, status, fame, social capital, all of these idols of ours, Jesus shuns it all. And the irony, of course, is that Jesus, God, is the only one who deserves all of those things. He shunned them for our sake. So imagine saying that about some pretty outstanding mortal people. I mean, just, I want you to think about this. LeBron, who though he is LeBron, does not count being LeBron as something to be grasped and exploited, but rather empties himself and becomes just like us. Serena who, although she is Serena, does not count her serena as something to be grasped and exploited, but rather empties herself and becomes just like us. Now, I would never expect either one of them to do that. And they're both great, right? I mean, other than Michael, LeBron's the greatest ever. I know I'll get emails on that. I'm sorry, I'm a Michael Jordan guy. But, and Serena, forget about it, okay? And I would never expect them to, quote, empty themselves. But that's essentially what Jesus did. It would be like them just completely emptying themselves of all this greatness that they had. And again, regarding Jesus, we need to remember he's still God. He just had none of that temporal glory of God by coming down here to save us. But it did lead to existential glory. The nature of Jesus when he walked this earth was not uh, either or but both and. And this is a big deal. Jesus gives up what you and I are so intent on pursuing in this world Uh, The child development researcher, uh, Yalda T. Uhas, she's a PhD at UCLA, writes this. Cody cited this uh, a number of weeks ago. I conducted a study with Patricia Greenfield at the UCLA campus of the Children's Digital Media Center at LA, which was published in Cyberpsychology last summer. We found that fame is the number one value communicated to preteens on popular TV. In every other year, fame ranked toward the bottom of a list of 16 values, coming in at number 15 or 16. Increasingly enough, being in community ranked number 11 in 2017, while in every other year it came in as number one or number two. Can you feel the shift going on in our culture? Jesus faces this with courage and purpose. And like I said, Cody talked about this research several weeks ago. Other qualities that have lost rank, uh, not just a little, but very much recently, are loyalty, diligence, duty, and patience as well. Why have we given up on those values in search of fame? I I will tell you, I have a theory about that. It's it's not the end-all be-all theory, and it really is just kind of part of what I think is happening, but I believe it's partly because so many leaders and people of power and status Who claim to be devoted to these other qualities of loyalty, commitment, diligence, uh, community, and call others to it have actually abused those values. Many entertainers, politicians, business leaders, and certainly there have been many pastors and many self proclaimed Christians. They make a mockery of these things when they exalt those values but re- refuse to live by them themselves. And it's no wonder that they're called hypocrites or we're called hypocrites. No wonder. And the data shows that this has been an exploding trend in our world today. No wonder people are cynical. We live, uh, by the way, I'm 60 years old. I've never lived in a culture of so much cynicism. I thought we were cynical at the end of the 70s. We're way more cynical uh, today, right now. And no wonder cheap fame has become something that many people see as worth pursuing. This is not the mind of Christ, y'all. This is pushing against everything that is the mind of Christ. But here's the other side of that coin. Just because people fail, abuse, and make a mockery of the very traits that make Jesus Jesus, it does not negate the fact that they are great gospel values. I am disappointed and frustrated When a person, and many have done this, when a person walks away from the faith, not because Jesus was bad, but because people were bad. Just because the followers of Jesus mess up, it does not invalidate the truth of Jesus. And here you go, I'll let you in on a little secret. People are going to be bad. But Jesus isn't. And here's the other side of that secret. If you're being disappointed by people and not worried about how you measure up to Jesus, you've made people your God and not Jesus and that's a problem and people will always fail you. Have you made your spouse your God, your idol? Are you asking your spouse to do things that, that your spouse has never been designed to do? Are you asking your employer or your coworkers or your friends or your family to do things that they were never designed to do that only God can do for you? You have set them up for failure. That's just true. It's doomed to fail. So as hard as it is, we continue to strive. We persevere, as both Paul and James tell us. And then we look at at verse 8, and we begin to see that upward uh, swing. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's where he hits bottom. And you and I, we're desperate to extricate ourselves from the brokenness of this world. I mean, we want out. We would like to be done with this. And so does Paul. I mean, Paul talked about it in verses 18 through 26 last week. But instead, Jesus enters this brokenness. Again, you see Jesus doing the exact opposite of what we're trying to figure out. And he does it, ironically, in order to make us light and salt in that brokenness. And then eventually he does, in a sense, extricate us By inviting us into the New Jerusalem, into the kingdom of God. And the only way he could do that was to be God and enter the human condition. That's a pretty amazing thing. And then verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So, the exaltation. This is the J curve. Paul Miller writes about this. And I would uh, highly recommend you get this book and and read it, It's, it's really applicable and helpful. Can we go back to it? There you go. So you see that ultimately life comes from dying first. It's it's another author saying that we descend into greatness. That that death is at the center of genuine love. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves, deny ourselves, and pick up our cross and follow him. That's the J-curve. And we need to be willing to engage in that. And dying to live is essentially, um, uh, is an essential part really of Jesus being able to do what Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says, which is one of my all-time favorite Bible verses where Paul writes, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that we might be saved. And then those last two verses, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord. That's the key word there. He's Lord. Yeah, but Jesus is my friend. Great. He should be your friend. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Amen. But if he's not Lord first... It's not going to make any difference that he's your friend. And it's not going to transform you if he's just your friend. It it, it means everything that he is Lord. And he's Lord because he's been raised from the dead. That's what makes him Lord. Nobody else has done that. And as Lord, that means we live lives of praise and worship and obedience and submission. and And in pursuit of his wisdom. And ultimately, it's all for the glory of God. That's verse 11. And by the way, verse 11 is not universalism as some people have tried to argue. Some people have looked at verse 11 in Philippians, taken it completely out of context and say, see, everybody's going to go to heaven, we don't have to worry about it. Not true at all. That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, we need to remember that acknowledging Jesus and placing our faith in Jesus are two completely different things. James even says, you know, the demons acknowledge God as God, and what do they do? They shudder they shudder okay now some people would say okay and I've heard this before this crucifixion thing this is brutal so how could a truly loving God do this to his son it's a fair question I think but one of the things that we need to remember is that I think God sees things through at least two different lenses and certainly two here a narrow lens and a wide lens Through the narrow lens, God looks at the crucifixion of his son, and he sees the evil, the pain, and the injustice. But through a wide lens, God looks at the crucifixion of his son, and he sees the redemption and restoration of everything, creation, and the reconciliation and salvation of all sinners. And that's a good thing. So what do we do with this? Well, like last week, there are many different directions we could go, but I think this is the one I want to land on today. We are called, like Jesus, to humble ourselves and enter the arena. I said last week Christianity is a team sport. This week I'm telling you not only is it a team sport, but it's a participation sport. And you may be sitting on the bench for a while or for a season, but ultimately you're not supposed to be sitting on the bench. You're supposed to be playing. You're supposed to be in the game. You're supposed to be in the arena. You're supposed to be salt and light, all of us. That's what we're called to be and I know it's gonna be challenging. Everyone acknowledges that it's gonna be challenging. The minute you get up and do something, expect the critics and the naysayers to come out of the woodwork, they just will. I love this quote from Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt was a president of the United States um, like maybe 400 years ago or something like that, I don't know, Um, but he writes this, and he's writing, uh, seriously, he's writing about people that need to get up and, and, and start doing something. Who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, who at the worst, if he fails, will at least fail while daring greatly. I love that phrase there, daring greatly. So that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who who neither know victory nor defeat. We are called as Christians to dare greatly in our faith because of the power of the gospel, to dare greatly. It means we're going to enter the arena and get criticized and get stuff thrown at us. But we are called to dare greatly. Uh, Believe it or not, the Holy Spirit this morning in the first service wasn't in my notes. The Holy Spirit actually gave me an NBA illustration, a national basketball illustration of this point. There's a guy who played for the Boston Celtics many years ago. He's in the Hall of Fame. He just passed away earlier this year. His name is John Havlicek. Anybody besides me know who John Havlicek was? Okay, unbelievable player, won eight or ten national basketball uh, association championships as a Celtic. Um, At the end of a close game, if the Celtics were down by one or two and they had the last possession, Havlicek always wanted the ball. And so he was asked one day, why do you always want the ball? He was asked by some pre-ESPN sports commentator, why do you always want the ball? And he said, is it because you don't think you're going to miss that last shot? And he said, oh, no, 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 it's not that. I know that occasionally I'm going to miss it. The reason I want the ball is because I know I'm not afraid to fail. See, we need more of that attitude, daring greatly. Jesus entered that arena, and not only did he face criticism but it killed him, and that's what he's calling us to do, and what we need to remember is we're not talking about basketball here. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about something that truly matters. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and the fact that it does shred us, but then puts us back together, builds us up, exalts us, and encourages us. So God, we pray that these truths would be things that that you would fill us with by the power of your Holy Spirit, by your resurrected Son, and that we would live them out. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.